Hello and welcome to our Film Ireland podcast. I'm Paul Farron. I'm very privileged to hear with Nick Kelly, whose debut feature film, uh, The Drummer and the Keeper, won uh, Best First Feature in Galway and is opening on, when is it opening, Nick? It's Friday the 8th of September. Thanks very much for coming here. Uh, I'd like to start with talking about your music career because your film career is relatively recent, but you're known to a lot of people through your band, The Fat Lady Sings. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I am just back and I'm a little bit hoarse, in fact, from uh, still from the electric picnic, so you'll have to forgive me. But I, I did a show there about how rock and roll teaches you how to make films. And I, uh, I kind of think they're the same skill set almost or the same instincts. Uh, so I think you learn a huge amount about things like rhythm and structure and also collaborative making of art so that you know you've got your you know you've loads of other people who are helping you make a thing i think you learn an awful lot from rock and roll that helps you in films so the things are are uh, related um so yeah i think my my all of the um relative lack of success that i had over the years in music is now paying off i think in film would you say the the collaborative aspect can be quite different though I think it's in well I think I was a very poor collaborator when I was younger as lots of uh people who feel very driven to do their art are when they are young because you think you have to take complete responsibility for every aspect of this thing uh that you're making so you you know you can't I mean unless you're prince or or you know uh, somebody who plays every instrument and you I mean and records everything you know you need to work with other people so there's things you can't do, but you bring the other people in and then you sort of micromanage them. And what happens is that people fight back for a while and then it's like they're drowning or something. They suddenly relax because they've just realized, OK, he doesn't want me to bring any of my own personality or humanity to this. He's just going to tell me what to do. So I'm just going to be a meat puppet. I'm just going to do exactly what he tells me to do. And it's kind of very relaxing because they've now seeded any form of creative... Um, investment in your project they just say okay I'll just do whatever you want me to do and so after a while and in my case I would say quite a long while embarrassingly long while you realize that uh, you are getting in the way of making a better record because the there anybody who works on your record is not you is going to change your record uh, and the only thing you can do is, is first of all choose really well people that you think get the same thing that you want to get and then after that you've just got one really simple choice is am I going to empower them to change it for the better or am I going to shackle them and force them to make it worse and like that's the only choice you have it won't be what you have in your head if you're lucky and if you choose well and if you don't get in the way it'll be much better than what you think it's going to be. So that's a really slow-learned lesson I have from music. But coming into film, I think it's been incredibly helpful to me because, you know, casting on both sides of the camera is kind of literally... It's, 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 it's not just the most important. It kind of is the only skill you need as a director is choose really good collaborators. Um, I think the choice... I, I think Kate McCalgan who I met on the Catalyst course, yeah, and you had to pair up with producers. I mean, an enormous amount of the reason that the film is 
works so well is because she then pulled in this brilliant array of people to work with me. Just to qualify, the Catalyst is the uh, award scheme that IFBs have run twice now, and the last one was 2014, and you were one of the three films chosen. So tell us, just give, elaborate on that for our listeners so they understand what that, what that entailed and how it helped, and you know, gave you uh, kind of parameters to work with. Well, I think I think the thing about the the catalyst, the first catalyst was done, I think, in uh, something like two thousand and two thousand and six or two thousand and five, a long time ago, and I there, it, you had to go on two weekends of mentorship, and then you could you know you had to apply for it, and then you had to do the thing. And I missed the, one of the weekends I was away, so I didn't do it, and I, and then they made three films, and then there was a seven year break. They didn't do it for seven years, and in the meantime, I had been I'd made. Shoe, which was uh, um, had got to the last ten for an Oscar, and I kind of thought, oh, I'm away, I'm totally going to get the money to make a feature film, and then I spent several years, kind of not quite, like getting development money and getting, you know, people liking a lot, a lot of the ideas I was coming up with, but not actually funding me to make a film. And then when the Catalyst thing was announced again, I was so on my radar. I thought, this is my one chance to jump past all of the gatekeepers. It's just a simple thing. Are you one of the three best projects that enters it? And uh, so the and so that was, um, it was in 2014, uh, they, they announced it. And so I actually went in with two different projects because I was so determined to not uh, mess up. And I think there was 400 people who went to the two seminars, most of whom were writer-directors, uh, and you had to pair up with a producer that was also on the course. You couldn't be a director producer. And so I kind of, there was two weekends of seminars and in between the two weekends, there was 10 days. And on the first weekend, I realized everybody here knows each other and I don't because I'm not really that long in film. And half the producers, there was there was 40 producers and there's like 360 writer-directors. So it was like the Hunger Games, you know. And uh, I realized that most of the producers are already paired with somebody. Or So in that 10 days, I took a reference out. I, I, wait, I researched every single producer and I kind of identified kind of about 10 that I thought were the most interesting and capable and had the best, the most interesting CVs. And I tried to meet them all in the 10 days in between. So I met, I think, seven of them for coffee. And uh, I found two to work with on two different projects. And uh, Kate... Uh, uh, McCalgan was of Calico was one of them and that was then so we then we then I think of the 400 people who were on the course 89 projects were submitted and 9 were shortlisted and 3 were chosen and the rest is history yeah but it's the best odds I could possibly so, have had you know what, what was nice though with the, what would you say the advantages of the cattle were I mean obviously it's a low budget but so it focuses you in, in certain ways but that in its way is also part of the uh, get a creative yeah. going. I mean, there's a bunch of things that are really interesting about it. I think one of the things is it is low budget, but it's been negotiated in a way that everybody is participating uh, financially in it. So if the films happen to be incredibly successful, everybody on the crew and the cast participates, not just the producer and the director. Uh, I think by definition, because it's a low budget thing, the only people who really work on one of those projects are people who are really into it. And, you know, 
Kate had huge numbers of contacts on cruise because she'd been on cruise for years because also it's, I mean at that point she hadn't produced a feature and so I mean and then and she just I think what happened is we got incredibly good people to work for us for like a pittance on and this project so I mean that's so when you call it, in it well in I was going to say well I mean it, in this in a sense it's it's hard to talk about the budget because you're it is there's not much money but the the um, on paper but the value of the people that you are getting is a multiple of the money that you're spending and I mean we pulled every other kind of favor so many friends and musicians that I contacted let me use their music for like really really tiny fees uh, we got almost all of our locations for nothing um, you know and, and well, actors came out of your own music background a bit as well would, I, would you agree I think it's certainly um, I think two things I mean um, so I, I mean John Walsh who did the score I knew from advertising and so John was always doing the score but the, the, these, the, all the different songs because the world that they're in is a, is a world of, of music um, I mean I did write a couple of songs or I, I wrote one with John I wrote one by myself for the film but I also I just I, I looked at all the scenes and I could see where we needed tunes and I just any time I was walking around a couple of years ago the Electric Picnic was a brilliant drum and bass band and I got their number and then I just called them up and I said uh, this there's a little bit that I need something for and people were incredibly generous so I think it, it's a, it's kind of amazing how much um, it's it, it's a funny thing low budget filmmaking because if you if you have enough and if a project people want to work on I almost think you, you, you even things like rehearsal before like we had all of the cast for several weeks before and that's to, to do with their generosity and their agent's generosity because we didn't really have m- enough money something like that and you know they we embedded them in autism drama groups and, and brought them into St. Pat's and doing all these kinds of things and actually if I had if I was you know and you know from my lips to his ears if I am working on a big budget feature in the future I know one thing that I'm unlikely to get is four or six weeks rehearsal with my cast. I know that, and and I won't get a chance to to do that work, and that's been a huge part of the film's success. Is that work, all the work they did, and how well we all knew our story and our characters. By the time we hit the set, we were like bulletproof on that stuff. How long was your shoot? Twenty days. Twenty days, which is tight, very tight. I actually happened to buy your set one day when we were coming down, and I was on a Lisa Kelly. Who's a wonderful uh, production totally. manager? Wasn't she a line producer or a manager? Uh, she well on this she's a on this she's production manager. She, uh, oh, she's great, but you yeah. could, it was palpable. There was a lovely energy in the air, and it's nice to you can feel that. Even it's, everyone, so we left quickly because we just outsiders. It's it's uh, it's a big thing, you know, and it's like people talk about casting, and and I and I mean this really seriously. It's casting on both sides of the camera. It's like it, you know. Your crew, and you know, you're by definition the least experienced person on set. I mean, that's kind of a, a cliche to say it, but it's true. I mean, it, up till the time I directed this, in terms of films, I had been on the set for, I directed one day in Delphine, one day in Why the Irish Dance That Way, and sort of about three days in Shoe. So that's five altogether. And then I've done, you know, probably another, well, sorry, well, I've done another probably maybe 20 days on ads 
Well, to, to so, you know, mind, uh, your first experience as a filmmaker is pretty much as a writer for advertising copywriter. Yeah. Uh, I th- I th- you've written one or two very quite famous Guinness ads, am I right? Yeah, I kind of, I stumbled in after I split The Fat Lady Sings. I kind of, I was trying to think of something I could do. And, uh, and at the time in, in music in the 90s, advertising was like this kind of satanic thing that nobody would go near. But um, I had, I think I'd been sufficiently beaten down and my morale crushed that I was open to anything, you know. And I went and I just had lunch with people and said, what should I do? Should I work in PR or should I work for a charity? Or uh, And somebody just said, you should try and be a copywriter. And I had always written for a living in one way or another. I'd written songs, I'd sometimes written articles and I'd... I'd reviewed video games for a couple of years and uh, I, I so I just stumbled into advertising and it was just incredibly uh, it was incredibly fun for me and I found that I and I'd never gone to art school and I just I'd only been in terrible videos but having never really Which had a great learning experience it was a huge learning experience because in a way much more than any screenwriter when you are a copywriter in an ad first of all you choose the directors you audition directors you shortlist and you audition like four top directors at least you then you choose the director you work really closely with the directors you go to all the castings i was in the casting i was the only person in the casting from the the you know the agency or the set or the crew who when michael fassbender walks in in london i mean i think there's no genius for me for me to think this guy's pretty good but you know that's an experience you go to all the shoots like, like I wrote my first short film on a borrowed computer in Iceland on the set of Tom Green. And you go to all the edit. You, you spent all of your time in the post. Like I spent on, on Tom Green, I would have spent six or seven weeks in London in a post house. And Tarsem, the director, was only there for two but days. That, that advertising level, it's almost on a Hollywood scale of immersion in terms it's, of the system of how things operate. Well, I mean, if you look at the budgets, uh, the budgets for any one of those Guinness ads. So I wrote five Guinness ads um, that would be like big Guinness ads. And then I wrote like, I wrote the launch ad for Walker's Crisps where Roy Keane mugs Gary Lineker and steals his crisps. Yeah. And, um, and, but no, different other things. And the budgets in a lot of those ads would have been over a million, you know, like three times our budget for, uh, for 60 seconds, you know, 40 seconds. So, so by definition, this, the level of production value so the skills of anybody, so the, you know, the production design on Tom Green, if you ever look in the background of any of those things, if you look in the back of the pub, there are, in the back of the pub, there's a calendar and there are hand-tied flies, which would have been true to the 1920s in Ireland, like that you would go into your pub and if you were a fisherman, you could buy flies for you. They, somebody has put those on the notice board now to what extent just so that you won't have to notice them so you won't have to notice them but it's there but you do catch stuff so that's stuff just unless unless you don't want to learn about making films working in advertising is an incredible education tell me this now the seeds of the story itself i know it comes from your music to some degree and also from your own personal experience having a son with asperger's would have been something because you're quite close to how did that I mean obviously that's where the inspiration came but could you elaborate on that for me yeah I mean the funny thing is what I really I think actually what I really wanted to do at the work from the word go is uh, is kind of almost a different thing which is that I've always felt that uh, we all have a sort of a theory about who our friends are in life 
and they, we often choose our friends. We curate our friends quite carefully uh, for their uh, loveliness and their amusingness and their uh, uh, yeah, and all sorts of things. And then every so often a terrible crisis hits. And really through no fault of our own, uh, all of those carefully curated friends are useless. They're, they don't, can't do the thing that you need at that moment because you're sort of a different person to the one that you, because you also curated yourself. And it's only in moments of crisis that you realise that actually you've, your idea of yourself, your press releases that you've been churning out about who you think you are, are all bogus. And actually the person you are is a bit different. And at that moment... At the very moment when your uh, theoretical best friends and are, are useless, out of the woodwork, I have often found, and I've often noticed in other people's lives, the weirdest people emerge who actually are helpful. And that's actually what I want to make the film about, is unlikely friendship. Having that thought in my head... I did think a lot about rock and roll. I, I like my pitch used to be was like you know the way everybody thinks that drummers are crazy and everybody thinks goalkeepers are crazy. So actually, if you are suffering from a mental health issue or you know have a neurodiverse condition, going into one of those areas is quite smart because no, you can sort of pass. Nobody notices. Um, and I think in rock and roll, I had absolutely often encountered. Uh, well, the behaviour that's tolerated in rock and roll is much broader than it would be in other areas of life. And it's even not just tolerated, but encouraged. You know, people want you to be wild and crazy. So I think at some level, it's quite a safe place to go if, you've got, if, you, if you're behaviourally doing, you know, working in a wider bandwidth. But it's also then, I think, it could be very uh, triggering as well. So I kind of had seen people including people I think didn't really realise they had an issue who were, and you know, the, the yawing up and down of you know, like real excitement and then real downs afterwards and everything. And you'd see sometimes people who were, you clearly had a mental health issue. So I was very aware of that. And then, and then on the other side, I have a child uh, on the spectrum. And that world, you know, what you're really trying to do is everything outside your front door you can't predict because you don't instinctively you're not instinctively picking up all these signals that the world uh, a lot of the world does pick up so to so that's where the anxiety comes from so to kind of combat the anxiety typically people with autism fall into really rigid routines because those are safe and they are they're not just mantra like they're predictable they are are a way of getting through the day and getting through your life which which isn't going to suddenly yaw into something that's really terrifying and different. So I think that the intersection between a character who is going up and down, up and down, and somebody who's going in a straight line, straight across, and trying to keep, you know, incredibly almost blinkered way of approaching the world. I thought that was a really interesting uh, and potentially explosive mixture of two characters if you wanted to explore unlikely but redemptive friendship. Yeah, I, I don't want to talk too much in terms of the plot because we don't give any spoilers away. But by the nature of, we agree that that our 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 keeper character is the one who's the more stable and solid of the two. Who kind of grounds? Yeah. Our drummer. Well, I think the thing is that everybody has got uh, strong points and weak points, and in our film, each of our two characters has. I mean, they've got a clear 
at least one clear weak point. But they do have strong points as well. And I think the interesting thing is to what extent uh, you can be forgiven your weak points through your strong points or whether somebody else's strong points can help your weak points. And I think that's a lot of stuff in our film. A lot of stuff's about that. Yeah, as Billy Wilder and I.L. Diamond said, nobody's perfect. (laughs) How did you find, uh, where was your head at when you were trying to cast for the keeper? What were you, did you think you were looking for? Or were you just hoping you'd find something? Uh, was there much preparation I'm, asked of the actors going into the audition? I think it's um, not... I, we cast for a very long time. That's the first thing. We cast for six months uh, looking for our, our the two main characters. I mean, we, do have, we have a big cast. So all along I was looking. And there's really... We're very, very blessed at this moment in, in Ireland in the last few years that there's a really genuinely great critical mass of, 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 of high standard of film acting. So it's, it's kind of a pleasure. And it's every day you go to a casting, it's so interesting who comes in and what they bring. So I never am bored of that. I felt we'd be, uh, in terms of preparation, I think the biggest thing probably is and you know and I and I think we directors have to be careful that we don't do this to actors is that you can go to the cliche with stuff like this incredibly quickly so I didn't really want I, I sort of I didn't really want to let tell people I, I preferred them to use the the, the, wor- the words on the page and find their own stuff in it like um, a lot of it's to do with energy because you can teach people you can teach people uh, at, you know if, if, you, if you've access to somebody for a long time you can like we shared um, we shared people with them. We introduced them to lots of people who were in both those situations and could give them a first-hand sense of what either having, you know, a, a you know a serious mental health um, issue was like, or being on the autism spectrum was like. And we did a lot of that. I think what you're mainly looking for in casting, though, is uh, an energy and uh, an inkling. That you think they are, you think they are on the same wavelength as you. That I can't. I'm not. That's as best I can put it. Is that I find that it's hugely important. That the talent is great, but if the rest of the working relationship isn't going to work, it makes mm. things very difficult. You need that as well. I think. I think you you become you become really good at. I think you do make those decisions uh, carefully because you are going to. You know, you need the person to be on the same page as you, and you need to think that that you're going to be able to build this together. So that this is, and you're going to go, you're going to spend a lot of time together in uh, uncomfortable climactic situations, and on, and and you know, and in raw situations, you're going to meet, you're going to talk about a lot of things that are very personal. So you need to feel you can have a you can have that conversation. You can go there with those people. So those are funny judgments to make. I mean, you you know, you meet people a couple of times, but you, you, your body makes all the more important decisions. In life generally, yeah. in art, it's not your brain, it's your body, just your gut instinct. It's so important. I don't trust, I don't trust interviews. I don't trust, don't trust interviews with me. Don't trust this one. <laughs> because, I, because people I 100% don't. agree. <laughs> no, because, you know, like I, I can give you my theory about what I think I'm doing. Yeah. But an oh, awful lot of the, yeah. but, but a lot of the decisions I'm making are just are they're very much I I I I'll post rationalize it 
Yes. Uh, but I may, be, I may not be being completely honest. It's an awful lot but of it's, it's just instinct. It does bring into thing that the word director at times is not the best defining of what that, of what that job is. Because you don't want to be directing as such. You want to find someone who already has a good sensibility in themselves. Uh, I think you should be, it's almost like what you are as a liberator. I think you, what you want to do is you want to let, you want to choose people who like, like, like pigeons or like eagles, people who can carry your story and then you want to let them free and they want to go to a place that you actually can't get up that high yourself. So that's literally what you want to do. I mean, a lot of the time when I'm on set, for the, I mean, as mo- mostly for the first take, I won't say anything. And very often, I mean, I don't know what, but like an awful lot of the time, most of the time perhaps, what happens is better than what I was going to suggest. And then if it isn't, or if I don't, you know, if, I, if there's something else I want to try, because I think... I, I'm I'm always going to be interested in what you if you're an actor I'm always going to be interested in what you're going to bring to me like that's I'm I'm greedy for that and and then and I think that buys you the the sort of you buys you the space then where if you've got an idea you can you, you'll it'll be taken back in good grace and they'll really try to see it your way as well and you'll try you know so you it's you both you you know you work together but it's very much like. Um, it's like a kind of opening. It's like opening presence takes rather than like it, it, then everybody terribly worrying. You know, it's it's it's. I love being on set. It's so exciting. It's so it's so it's so much fun. Which did you find more difficult to cast, the the, the keeper or the drummer? Well, the I mean the the bizarre bizarre thing about the casting was we had seen lots of people. Uh, we'd seen really good people for both those roles. Really good people. Um. I didn't feel we quite were there or you know and there was I'd seen somebody showed me a couple of things that Dermot had been in and I thought his energy was really interesting so I said could we see him it was just coming up to Christmas in fact it was the last sort of working week before Christmas and Maureen Hughes our casting director said uh, there's this guy coming back from Los Angeles who's just back for Christmas to see his family, but he could come in, if you like, and read with Dermot, so you could, you know, just, if you want to see him as well. I said, no, brilliant, because we need somebody to come in and read the part. So Dermot and Jacob came to the casting together, and they had never met each other, and we had never met either of them. And That was a coup. It was just a huge stroke of luck. I mean, I think, I think even if I had seen them individually without... If I'd seen in either, I think I would. In each case, I'm pretty sure I would have, I would have got it. You would have felt that. They I, would have I, been but I mean, it was. Together. But I mean, it was just seeing the two of them together. Like literally, I mean, I, myself and Kate, we walked out of the thing. We thought that was kind of great, and then we looked at the tapes, and the next day we said, okay, those those two, we should cast those two. And I mean, and that was after like six months. Wow. So and it was right at the end, like because we but were booked in to start filming in eight weeks, you know. So, mm-hmm. so. That's luck. That's 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 kind of like one of those happy accidents. But it's particularly seeing them together, actually, because you know there was also they themselves. Uh, they were very. They were. I can't explain. They were very. Gen- they were very generous with each other, just on the in that casting. Like I can't really explain. It was just. It was just great to see them together. Really, it just made me. It made the decision very easy. 
And uh, obviously a big shout to Maureen Hughes for putting up with you for six months. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And and you know and 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 you know, I would say that 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 the actors the that that sort of generation or semi-generation of actors that you know she's identified and you know helped develop and along with you know other people um i mean that's a really that's a huge like everybody talks about the film uh, irish film being in a good space at the moment and i really think it is yeah. in the sense of like there's there's not just like a, an irish film that you like every three years there's like three irish films that you like every year or five yes. or six and I think a huge amount of that is to do with the acting talent. I think that even from when I was casting Shoe, and you know, like I, I mean, I love my casting in Shoe, and I did see some other really good people who we didn't cast and in Shoe. But I felt uh, that they, I felt Peter Coonan again. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Nice role. Oh no, he's great, uh, Peter. It is. It was. Um, yeah, I mean, because like obviously I knew Peter ever since Shoe, and he's been my mate since Shoe because he was, you know, and uh, him and him and Pat again. There was such a a relationship uh, that came it was much harder to get the two of them out. they were very separate and but again it was their energies you know and their contrasting energies and she um, uh, but Peter was um, when we were uh, the role of Toss who's like the somewhat caught in the middle bass player in the in in the in the drummer's band and he was doing one of the uh, 1916 plays so he had a moustache that he had to wear for the play and he couldn't shave it off because for the shooting days, we just there was there, you know, and we had to wrap him early to all that stuff. So we we just decided, okay, his mustache is going to have to be part of his character. So it's almost had its spin-off series itself. Oh, like so oh, he's so we, you know we, we wardrobed him then. We said we have to make him look like he kind of really in his heart he's kind of a Doobie Brothers uh, kind of fan. He's like a sort uh, of retro. He's uh, one of those one of those hipsters, but who's gone like yeah, deep, I, I, deep I retro, gone, like fine. Take on a really microscopic on the hipster analogy. Then you went, yeah, let's get that hipster thing really right and <laughs> talk a, a big one up for the tash wears. Oh, know? the t- I know, and it, and it's a it's a it's um it's a it's a proper moustache like it's not it is it is model oh, yeah, zone it's, it's not it's not a, it's not a prosthetic it's, it's a great granddaddy job it is yeah again great performance all around I, one person that stuck up for me and forgive me for not remembering their name was the the coach so Adrian Hudson who plays the coach and sort of a care, the care worker I mean he's an incredibly very important, nice performance it's a brilliant performance and I'm, I'm really glad you bring it up because for understandable reasons everybody talks about uh, Dermot and Jacob who you know are their their individual performances and their knitting together of that relationship is is the film but you know all around I've been really lucky with the, the other roles and and in particular um uh, Eric the, the who is he's the figure who literally straddles the two worlds in the sense that he runs the mixed ability football game which brings them together but he's also the person who through whose eyes we the audience can judge how things are going because by definition Dermot's view of the world is somewhat off kilter uh, 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 Gabriel's view the, the the drummer and by definition um, Christopher the goalkeeper's view of the world is somewhat off kilter so um, Eric who knows them both and he calls it a lot about you know just because you're uh, bipolar doesn't mean My you have to be an arsehole yeah <laughs> and, and I think that that's really I think he's uh, a brilliant actor He's really, I think he just, he's so, he so knows that character and he so 
he's such harsh in his performance and I think and he's so un he's so anti preachy, you know, which is yeah. really important, I think. He's a kind of subtle mentor in the background, but he never actually shows his hand, but his hand is doing lots of work. Well, you know, the thing about anybody who works in those spaces, if you meet them, and I meet them a yeah. lot, is, is um, you know, it's hard yards. Like, you know, it's, yeah. it's, not a, it's not a sprint, it's a marathon, and you do it for a long time. The people who do well and do it for a long time, they have their own coping mechanisms. They draw their own lines. They make their own, um, they have their own personal contract with their role so you know I, I'm, I'm totally happy with this I'm totally happy with this I'm not happy with that and and you know and they that's they work out a way that they can be helpful and uh, in within you know and I think that the, I've seen that um, that that sort of it's, it's an it's a sort of an enduring good humour uh, it's you know there won't be a perfect solution but you know what we're going to do is good enough is good enough and that's really important for people. Uh, you know, perfectionism is is kind of not just the enemy of filmmaking, but it's it can be the enemy of your mental health as well. And you know, what what we all need to be is is kind and forgiving and not sweating the small stuff. And I think um, Eric's pretty great at catching that quality. Yes, definitely. I, I mean, the whole message for me of the film was that everyone deserves to be given a chance. And that, as you say, no, nobody is perfect, but we can all help each other fill in the gaps. Well, I, yeah, I, well, I really believe that. I mean, it's, it's funny because I, you know, the thing about the film is it's a funny film and it's, I think, a kind of a, 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 a quite pacey film and quite an upbeat film in a lot of ways. It does deal with some issues that are are difficult issues, but but you know I I've, one of the things I really people would say well is is this it's quite issuesy isn't it like dealing with and the thing is I don't well a I sort of don't really buy that it is because issuesy suggests that it's like it's way over there and like and I'm of course not actually mentally ill myself as a viewer so I wouldn't be interested in that but the fact is we're all one degree of separation away from this uh, you know and if you're not it, like one of the you know uh, one in four people who is having or will have treatment for mental health issue or one the one of the one in 65 people that has autism in Ireland you know your cousin is your brother is your mum is or your your next door neighbour is so we're all like in this together and I mean there are other things we're all some of us are better at than others so I kind of think um, being uh, open to the uh, frailties of people and being forgiving of the frailties allows you to release the gifts that other people have to give you and I really believe that uh, I thought it was unapologetically upbeat and I thought that was a, that was one of the things I, I did like about it and why not why shouldn't it be well, I mean, I think it's it's um I you know it's a funny I mean this is where you get into the kinds of films that that you want to make or the kind of film you want to make at any given moment I mean and, and you know I can't say that I always will want to make exactly films like that but you know like when I was thinking about films that I really love you know uh, they're quite I think it's hard to be warm and cool at the same time so <laughs> like uh, I kind of think I'm I'm cleaving towards the warm and I you know I do I, I love Juno I love Billy Elliot and uh, I loved about a boy, and uh, and films like that 
So they'd be close cousins of it. In, in well, I think. I mean, they're all. I, 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 if if I I don't know that each of those films has its own aesthetic and and you know and ours has our own aesthetic as well. But I think I like I like the feels of those movies, and I I and I get us. I think we're in. I think we're more in those spaces than in some other spaces. So I see you in London Film Festival as well. Yeah, that's a a, a really brilliant thing. Fantastic. It's just happened in the. I mean, it's it's all kind of happened quite quickly because we, it's like warfare. I always say that you know you you the intense moments of activity and then long bouts of kind of waiting around for something to happen, and you know and after we we were sort of, really finished the the post in like sort of February and we were kind of thinking about what we would do and then, we went to Galway. And literally the day before we went to Galway, we'd been talking to Element and we signed an Ireland and UK distribution deal with Element. Then we went to Galway. So that was the Thursday we signed the deal. On the Friday we screened in Galway and got like a, an incredible reaction, I, I can say. I mean, we got a standing ovation. We had people in floods of tears. We had people standing up, giving so, I am Spartacus, you know, like speeches from the stalls up to us, you know. And, and that was an amazing thing. And then on the Sunday... I mean, which actually was genuinely a bonus as opposed to the main point, but I mean, it, was, it was like we won the best Irish first feature. So that was, and then on the Tuesday, uh, I went into a meeting in Alma, which I thought was just like sort of meet and greet. And there was eight people in the room and they said, we should go in September. There's a slot in September that would really work. So it's all been incredibly fast. Um, and so, and then the London Film Festival, we, you know, so we had, we suddenly were up and running in Ireland and in cinemas in Ireland, uh, you know, like very, very soon now. And then the London Film Festival, which is in October, they came back and said, well, listen, we'd really like you to come there. So that's kind of uh, incredibly harmonious for us. So so I'm really looking forward to that. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to that first step out of the country because I don't think there's nothing Irish about this film at all. I mean, we shot it around Dublin. There isn't a single phrase in it that is Irish. There's not a single, you know, I'm really interested in making films about humans, not about Irish humans. Well, on that note, Nick, I'd like to say thanks very much. Um, we'll hope your film does really well Thank here you. and abroad. Thank you. And keep up that universal storytelling. I'm doing my very best. Thanks, Nick. Cheers, Bob.